Welcome to First Thought Backstage at Galway International Arts Festival. I am Paul Fahey, Artistic Director of the festival, and in this series we get to sit down with theatre makers at Festival 2022 to discuss the ideas behind and the making of their shows. You can listen back to all episodes via giaf.ie or find First Thought Backstage on any podcast platform. First Thought is presented in association with University of Galway. Hi everyone, my name is Patrick Onergan, I'm Professor of Drama at NUI Galway and I'm moderating the post-show discussion this evening. So joining me here on stage for the post-show discussion for True West are two members of the Steppenwolf Ensemble. We've got Randy Arney and Aura Jones. And we're very lucky to have with us two members of the ensemble right away. And you are not only the uh, performer tonight, as Saul, but you also directed. Is this not true? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did, did I hear this correctly? Okay, so, you know, here in Galway, we, we're very proud of our ensemble, Druid Theatre. And people here say, you know, the show that made Druid's name was the Playboy of the Western World. When people talk about Steppenwolf, they say the show that made Steppenwolf's name, I don't know if this is true, is True West, right? It was the first show that we took out of Chicago right. um, and to New York, and uh, that was in 1982, 83, something like that. Um, and it was the first show in our 40-year history that we ever did again with this production. Um, but yes, it, it would be the one that... As I say, we took it uh, out of town, and uh, and then a film was made of it. Uh, John Malkovich and Gary Sinise, and and oddly enough, I played Saul Kimmer in that production as well, for 40 years ago. I said it, the, the role was written for a 46-year-old. I think I was about 25 or 26 when I did it then, and I'm like 65 or 60. So the average it averages out. Uh, and um, so yes, I think that it was the show that really took off for us and uh, um, you know this is a play that teachers will often say is about the American dream is that do you think that's a fair way to describe it or is that too simplistic? well um, I think it's uh, it's so interesting having when we worked on it 40 years ago we thought it was a play about the industry about the business the difference between film and uh, and movies and uh, and but in coming back to the play, I'm more convinced it's a play about family. Yeah. You know, mom is in the play. You get to see a little bit of her. Uh, dad is all over the play, and they are haunted by him. And it's, it's like long day's journey tonight in some ways. A an American classic that, that is kind of about the American dream, I guess. The dichotomy, duality of brothers. And... Um, and, but but I see it more as a as a play about family than I did the first time around. I think I mean what I love about your role in particular, and this is where the family thing really comes into it, is we've got I think isn't it eight scenes of, of men talking to each other and there's the fighting and the drinking right. and the golf clubs and all the rest of that stuff, and then you get to show up and completely flip the dynamic in the last scene. You know, can you talk a bit about playing that role and how it feels to come in and and change the energy in that scene? I can tell you that. Um, I uh, was not the person who did it in our latest production uh, at Steppenwolf. I was asked uh, to join this, and then there was a pandemic, so we had to wait a while. So I had, they had an entire run, I had two weeks of rehearsal. 
<laughs> before we came here, and we came here in such a uh, in such a rush to try to get this done that when I stepped on the stage last night, I think it was a little more mom than I wanted her to be because I hadn't seen the set and I hadn't seen the blood <laughs> and I hadn't seen a lot of things, and so mom was very. <laughs> Whatever that is. It is absolutely fun to sit there and listen to two men beat the living daylights out of each other for a while and then I come on and yeah. just scare them, you know. It, because, you know, it's really about, uh, it is about family for me and it's about my two sons after all this time still acting like children, still tearing the house apart, still tearing each other apart and tearing their mother apart. Um, and nothing has changed. And, you know, we've talked about how she talks to them now as grown men the same way she talked to them when they were eight and nine and treating each other that way. And uh, it's shocking for her in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, what's shocking for the audience is what doesn't upset her. They're, they're literally trying to kill one another. And all she's saying is, go do it outside. Just go do it outside. But is that because, you know, we're watching this play and what I noticed where I was sitting when, when that scene is happening and he's choking him, there are people sitting around me and they, they look, you know, distressed and mm -hmm. they're worried about the characters and really involved in it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that your character is there kind of saying, oh, do it outside, mm -hmm. gave everyone permission to just relax a little bit? In a way, yeah. Because you've seen this play before. Right. No, actually. But your character has. I still haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. We we talked about uh, what we talked about things that are not in the play, but are referenced. Whoever this man is living out on the desert with his teeth, no teeth, and whatnot, and and how traumatizing that marriage must have been, how abusive that relationship must have been, um, and. And also, also because you know you watch your own mother. Nothing is harder than watching your own mother have to step back and watch you make your own mistakes and that sort of thing. But there's a not a glaze, and not that she doesn't care. But we've talked about that sort of like yes. she's just traumatized. Post-traumatic stress. <laughs> that is, that is, she lives in a house that is very, very put together. It's what she can control. She can her. She loves her plants because they are growing living things but they don't talk back and they don't you know, ruin anything. She's got her plates, she's got very, this is her life in control, and then she comes back and it is completely blown apart the way her life, the way it's happened in her life repeatedly. So when she comes home again, as bad as this is, there's sort of a, the way you go into yourself when you're facing that awful thing again. Self-protection. And you can't control it. You know, yeah. you, you do what you can to survive. Yeah. And I guess that, I mean, that line, it's, it's, very, it's very subtle, but it's very hard to listen to when she says one last thing to care about, about the plants. Right. Yeah. right. That really hits, I think. Yeah. It, yeah, really Everybody hits. left her. You, you know, you can imagine, as we've talked about, growing up with these boys and, and her husband, and as she said, the abuse and the, mm. the fighting. And, and so she's got all the right words, she quit fighting, uh, but kind of a disconnect that she, uh, emotionally, and it kind of makes her com ineffective, completely ineffective. Uh, I grew she up was in six. Yeah, I grew up with six, uh, five siblings. There were six of us, and I remember my mom clapping, "Stop! Take it outside!" And uh, while well, all hell was breaking loose, and so it's um, a little close to home. Mm -hmm. So. 
you you acted in the 1982 production. That's right. You directed the revival of this when it was in Chicago, which was 2017, 2018. Yes, like that. that's right. Were you supposed to be acting on stage with us tonight? No. Okay. <laughs> I was not. So tell uh, us about what happened there. Laura said she had two weeks of rehearsal. I had about five days. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman who played Saul, who's a wonderful ensemble member, actor in our company, um, we had two weeks of rehearsal in Chicago, and in the second week, uh, he had emergency gallbladder surgery. Uh, and he still continued to fit, you know, it was laparoscopic, he was going to be fine, then he had complications from that, they had to do it again, so I had kind of been walking around with the script just to keep, keep the, the boys going, and, um, and about, it was, it was last Monday, actually, that, that uh, Fran decided he just <laughs> couldn't make the trip, so uh, quick costume fittings and, and what have you, and, uh, and we had, uh, about four or five days in Chicago, and then we got here and had an afternoon to kind of set tech up, and uh, and so it was uh, kind of reminded me of why I went into this business to begin with. That adrenaline rush. <laughs> Thank you. What I love about the idea of Steppenwolf, right, is that Steppenwolf is an ensemble of, of actors and writers and directors, 40, 49 people? Do I have yes, that right? I believe so. You know, people talk about the cliche in theatre about how the show must go on, and you know, we learned something over COVID, it's that maybe sometimes the show doesn't need to keep going on, right. but that resilience and that perseverance and that thing about how we all pull together yeah. is really special. Now, both of you are members of, of the ensemble of, of the Steppenwolf. Yeah, all four, exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So right. can you talk a bit about being part of Steppenwolf, what that means, and, and how long you've been part of the, the ensemble? Uh, I and John and I, John who uh, plays Austin, we came in with four other people uh, to the end of 2006. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess it's, it doesn't feel like, like right, it has. Right. Um, and it was um, the, the artistic director that we had at the time was uh, working diligently to try and uh, get more diversity into the company because at that point there was one African-American uh, in the company and that was it as far as people of color. Uh, we certainly at that point, no one was talking about uh, any other kind of race things or gender or, or no one was talking about that. So there were, there were six of us who came in, um, four of us were African-American and I did not say yes at first to the invitation <laughs> because I had been, you know, freelance actor like everyone else and, and liked that kind of freedom. And, and I would also say that I am a recovering joiner, that I'm always, you know, wanting to get into this group, that group, some other group, thinking, oh, this is going to be the place where I belong and this is going to be, and it's always something because there's always, you know, human beings involved. So. When um, I was asked to join, I, I had several questions about what my, what my role would be as an ensemble member. Am I here to simply compensate for and apologize for the lack of color on the stage because I want to do more than that, because I am more than that. Um, uh, uh, I, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher, I don't, I don't write, I, I'm an actor. And Steppenwolf is famous for everybody doing everything, you know, the person who wrote one play might direct another and might be teaching a class uh, uh, later on and might even, you know, get to design sets and things like and the, the number of people taking their turns as artistic director, which uh, uh, Randy has also done. So 
I did not say yes at first because I, I, didn't, I didn't know that if they were sure that I was enough. Because I'm an actor. That's what I like to do. Um, it, it's what I enjoy and it's where my gifts lie. Uh, so there was some discussion about that back and forth before I said yes. And then there was, an, I don't know if this, this happened um, with you when you, when you uh, became a member, but there was also a couple of years of trying to figure out where my place was at a time when, they, when there was transition. There's always transition, but it was another period of transition uh, uh, and direction, uh, whatever they're, with their, what they were going to add to the mission statement that they had before. So it, t it took some time to kind of like find my place, but uh, I will say that every person that I have met in the ensemble, and I haven't worked really with very, with very many of them, that for them to say, you're an ensemble member, welcome, hi, my name is, um, and, welcome, and they are welcoming and helpful. Uh, I, w I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a family. We've talked about whether it's a, a big family, and it isn't really. It, it is more like a, right. a tribe. It, 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 it evolves. I, yeah. I, was, uh, I was fortunate. I, I uh, went to a small college in southern Illinois, uh, and John Malkovich was in our theater department, and Joan Allen was in our theater department, a couple of the people who became the first members. And John used to call me. I was still in school a year or two ahead of me saying you should quit school, come up here. We're in the basement of a church in Chicago. And, uh, and I said, you're out of your mind if you think that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but when I graduated from school, John was directing something and said, you know, I got a part for you. Nobody's getting paid anything, but if you want to come to Chicago instead of New York or California, there's a show uh, and I'd love for you to be in it. And so I knew a lot of the gang. Um, and in fact, as Aura said, the, we, it really started as a bunch of students who grew up in small towns in Illinois who accidentally met each other at State College and decided, let's go to Chicago. It's such a big place and we're all from small farm towns. Um, if we just go up there and do three plays together over the summer, we'll learn how to ride a subway, we'll learn how to get an apartment. Uh, and so we got up there into the basement of the church and did three shows. and and partly because we couldn't get work anywhere else, said, let's do another few. And it, it just kind of went like that. And as Aura said, because of that, we were a bunch of, of white kids who were, had moved to Chicago and were choosing plays that we ourselves could do. And so it, it really took, it, it really did take evolution as the company grew. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said a minute ago about how the company doesn't revive plays, or at least it hasn't right. before now. So that you were saying you'd never seen True West, right? Because it was done. She wasn't bored, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really well, first of all. Okay, so why why not do revivals, and then why revive this one? Well, we just never. We each one of our plays. We it, it's. I don't. That's a great question. We've done them. We figured we'd done them and done them as well as we could, and and we moved on. Uh, in this case. These two actors, who were new members, fairly new members of the ensemble, came and said, we've got a real a yen to do that play. We think we could really do it, and it would be great. And, uh, and we've always followed each other's impulses. And so the artistic director at the time called me and, and asked if I would have interest in, in directing the play. A lot of us that direct began as actors, and, um, and we'd always pick the plays, cast each other in the play, 
And then we'd give the keys to a director who, from out of town or somebody we didn't know, and, and they get to drive the car. And we were just selfish enough that they didn't know why we picked it, they didn't know why we cast it this way, and yet they were called in to direct it. So I remember a meeting where we said, what the hell, you know, you direct this one and I'll direct the next one. And you, and so we, we just kind of circled the wagons a little bit. And, uh, and so that's why a lot of us, I was really an actor, uh, for a long time began, before I began directing. Lately, I've actually directed more than acting. In fact, this was the second play I think I've been in in many, many years. Um, so uh, that's why this play came back around, though. It was, it was these guys saying that's a wonderful show. Uh, they've played brothers before. Yeah. Uh, and they said, we kind of like a crack at that. And the artistic director said, well, it's been... 40 years, it, it made us realize, wow, that would have been like somebody coming us in the 80s and saying, we've got this play, it was done in the 40s, but you can't do it now. And, and it's like, that was generations ago, why can't we do it again? We had a whole new audience that had never seen this play. And um, so that's where, that's how we came back to it. I think it also goes back to the, the comments you were making earlier about how when you join the ensemble and the, the diversity of the, the ensemble and how it might reflect or not reflect the city that you're based in, and like we know that you know the great American classics are traditionally performed with white actors, and that's changing. Mm -hmm. Like we have *Death of a Salesman* is on Broadway at the moment yes. with black actors playing those yes. roles, and it's yes. the same script, you know. And this is the yes. same script that Sam Shepard wrote. And when yes. I'm assuming, based on what you were saying earlier, that when this was done in '82, it was, it was an all-white cast. That's right. Actors. Yes, in, yeah. and in fact, it, it is. It has new resonance for that reason. In some ways, it was seeing it again with this family. Yeah. Um, and you know, so much has been appropriated <laughs> anyway. I talked with these guys when we first started. I was reading about the West when I came back to, to rehearse this. And regardless of what Hollywood has done, actual cowboys, one out of every four cowboys in the 1800s was an African-American. Mm -hmm. And two of the other three were Mexican. But Hollywood makes you believe that it, it, it was all white folk. Yeah. Uh, and, and so these are the descendants of the West, just as much as anybody else are descendants of the West. And, and their dad could have grown up on the desert and could have been a cowboy or a, a son of a cowboy, just like, just like any, any white person could. And so it really was kind of a revelation to to go back to work on it with this family, and there are lines that resonate differently, uh, and, um, and so it, it, it was really part of, for us, blowing the dust off of an old classic and, and, um, and seeing it anew. I think you also have to think about um, how much more global uh, we, uh, as citizens of the world, are, and particularly for Americans. America is, a huge country and unless you live very far north or very far south um, you're not going to encounter another uh, another world I mean you can you know with neighborhoods and and, mm -hmm. and uh, immigration and and all of that you can but it, it's different from uh, how it is here where there's a country That's not right. very far away if you get out onto the continent they're all just like lined up next to each other and so, um, you know, I think the globalization of Americans being able to travel more, there's access to, uh, there's more access to other cultures, there's more access to other languages even, you know, and politics and just learning how 
other people live. It, it, the, someone had asked me this question a, a while ago about, you know, um, like 20 years ago about diversity and, and how you do that and what's your definition of that. And, and part of what I said was, you know, I don't know what is worse, that people deliberately exclude you or if they, it just didn't even occur to them yeah. in the first place mm-hmm. that you're here. You know that that you exist, and that you know not just for not just for race, but for gender. Like the you know doing productions that maybe are all women now. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know doing productions that yeah. are that are written for and about uh, uh, gay and transgender and or so forth and the so first on. First time a disabled actor played Richard III in mm-hmm. Stratford upon Avon. That just happened. You know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it just doesn't occur to you, and and you know, like you were saying, like well, we just grew up in the middle of you know. Southern Illinois. I grew up in a town that there the, was no diversity. There was. And, and I think that's true of most of the original people in this company from our little rural communities mm-hmm. when we met it at college. Right. And, and, and so some of these stories are not necessarily, uh, uh, it's not necessarily about exclusion. You read these stories and you realize that pain is universal. Yeah. That, um, you know, that's how right. you experience that pain might be particular. But pain is universal, rejection is universal, universal loss and grief are universal. And these, there are stories that you, you can tell in, in so many, so many facets to it that it's not necessarily just about one group of people. And it's, and it's exciting to be able to give it a read with, with a different group of people that you might not have thought about even 10 years ago. Yes. Yes. Hello, Ken. I was, I'm going to go after questions in a minute, but one last one of my own before you do that. I was thinking, so on this stage in 1997, we had the world premiere of a Martin McDonough play called The Lonesome West. Yes. Right, and the title is very deliberately, yes. like he, you know, I wouldn't say he plagiarized True West, but he was definitely inspired by it. Yes. And, and what's really, it, that totally reflects what you're saying, that, you know, he, he set his play in Connemara, just up the road. Yes. Two brothers killing each other. Yes. Uh, destroying a kitchen, just yeah. like this. Yeah. And, it, and it works because it works as, as a, you know, people look at it and say it's typically Irish, okay? And so that universality thing, I think, is, is really interesting. Mm. It might be too early in the run to, to, to say, but have you noticed anything, any differences in how the audience is reacting here in Galway yet, or is it it's too soon, maybe? I, too soon. I, I have to say too soon. We had our first audience last night, and you were her second, and they're both wonderful audiences, and... Uh, and I'm struck, though, it, it, again, it's what you just said, Aura, the, the humanity that connects us all. I mean, you, you respond to exactly the same, most of exactly the same thing that, that audiences elsewhere have, have responded to. We've taken place to Australia. In fact, 1986, I think, we were in the same hotel with the Druids mm-hmm. in Sydney, Australia. And... Uh, We'd taken a play there, and they were there, and we got to meet Gary and, and, and many of those members. And um, I remember one night, we were in the lobby of the hotel until all hours, and finally the gentleman came up and said, Sir, we have to ask you to leave the lobby. We have had a record number of complaints this evening <laughs> from our patrons. And so we couldn't out-party the Druids. That, we, we learned that. But, but, oh, my God, they were doing a Tom Murphy play at the time. Conversations on a Homecoming. And, yes, yeah. and Conversations on a Homecoming. And uh, we saw, we just had a, we connected. I mean, they, yeah. Their impulses, the way they go at plays with, with all guts, balls, uh, is exactly like our impulses. And um, 
And so we just had a, had a ball with them and have stayed in close touch ever since. I was surprised. I know the Druids, my first time to Galway, and I knew that they have their own space, but I was just looking at one of the signs out front about how many of their premieres started at this space, and it, it made us feel warm uh, Yeah, this, this theater opened the 1st of February 1996 with the world premiere of The Beauty Queen of Lignan, which yeah. I think you directed. Mm. That's, that's right. Correct. I directed that with Laurie Metcalf, uh, wow. one of our ensemble members. And, uh, and uh, so, it, yes, we, I have found that I'm always keen on what the Druids are up to because their tastes very much run in the same channel as ours. Yeah. Would anybody like to ask a question or make a comment? Um, feel free to... Yeah, Marianne? I just wanted to say... It's interesting that you mentioned Tom Murphy because I kept getting struck by those very sort of the the the, the what is being said and what isn't being said. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that in the writing, um, and it really comes out of that production. We really get the it, no matter how cool and cat, particularly in the character of the mother, you know what's not being said is. Yeah. Is so much more important almost than yes. what she's actually saying to her daughter. Mm. Yes. Um, she's almost given up hope of, and it does. It seems you know it provides comic relief in in some senses for us as <laughs> audience members because and mothers, you know. But but it but at the same time that that the depth of that feeling where she really doesn't have hope that it can even change. What you have to leave behind if you want to survive. Yeah. My, my mother is 85. Don't anybody tell her that I told you that. <laughs> but she had started losing people at the age of four. She was the last of 11 children, and she lost her own mother and a sister to pneumonia, you know, in like 1940. And, uh, uh, and she herself, in, in the span of two weeks, and she herself had been hit by a bus, yeah. you know, within, the, within that. And, and since then, you know, she's continued to lose more and more and more. And she is such a, she's a hustler. She is a survivor. Yeah. And uh, while she holds on dearly to certain things, she makes it very clear that if, if you hold on to everything, you, you, you'll sit in one place until you're gone. Yeah. until you're gone and so some of it is very dear to leave behind but you know the people who love you who have left do not leave you to sit in one place that's not what they want for you yeah. you know and I, I responded to what you just said about how much you learn when nobody's speaking mm. and we very much follow Sam Shepard's he writes the pauses and the silences and and it's very much part of the music of the play, and um, and so we learn it kind of like a in a way a musical score. Uh, those pauses are as important as as when someone's talking. One of my favorite quotes: Harold Pinter, who famously wrote plays with he'd have silence, or then he'd have pause, and then he'd have a beat, and so different lengths of silence. And he one time said he he uses words to shape the silence because it's only when it's silent that there is truth on stage. If someone's talking, someone's spinning. Mm. And that's true. When anyone's talking, you aren't necessarily getting the truth. So he found that if he could shape a situation and land you into a silence where neither character knew what to say or had too much to say, that somehow you learn as much from those silences as, as you do when someone's speaking. So we have a question here. If anybody else wants to ask questions, just wave at me. I will see you <coughs> calling you. Yep, go ahead. 
I was just um, noticing that with the change of colour in some of the lines of the script, had another little under, undertone of a dig at one point when um, Saul is talking about the golf room and he says, where does someone like you learn how to play golf? Yeah, right. Because this was in the 1980s? Yes, 1980s. Yeah, there's a there's a, a another moment there that I, I find interesting where you see that Austin tries to be buttoned down and Lee is obviously on the edge and um, and Austin says to Lee, you know, you're gonna get stopped walking around like that, and he yes. says, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. who are you <laughs> right. talking about? You know that yeah. it, it really doesn't matter. You, you stick out just, like a sore thumb. You stick out says. like a sore thumb. Yeah, well, no matter. Floyd, that line lands differently. Anyway. And yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I have two questions over here. So Paul and then yeah, the person behind you, I can't see. Yeah. I just wanted to ask uh, two, two questions. One, Randy, um, going back to the 1982 production, was Sam Shepard in the room much? He was not. We actually met Sam after that production. Interestingly, the play had been done in New York, not very successfully. It was a production that Sam had worked on. Sam's home company was the Magic Theater in San Francisco. And they'd taken a production from there to New York, and it really didn't go very well. And it was a couple, three years later that we took our production to New York, and, and that's when Sam kind of noticed us. Uh, but it wasn't for working with him. It was, it was after we got the play up. And, um, and after that, he became a a friend of the ensemble, and uh, we did several of his other plays, and uh, last night was touching for us. Uh, three of his adult children came. Uh, oh, here? Yes, oh, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the opening last night. So and, they've got all uh, the connections. And I met them when they were toddlers. Uh, but uh, so, as I say, we, we really adored Sam and, and his work and have done several of his plays, and his plays really have spoken to us, but, but he wasn't really involved at all. In fact, he came in for some of the rehearsal when we did Buried Child. But other than that, he pretty much left us on our own and he would usually come in and, and visit and see it, but, um, but he, was, he was very much hands off, really, in the production. It was already written, though, so that in answer to your question. It, it had been done, he'd finished with it by the time we did it. Does this, you know, as a whole, or as much as it can, ever meet like every two or three years where it kind of be sort of thinking of, you know, where's the company going and what's our purpose? And, are we staying true to the artistic vision we had back then, or, or should we or should change? But is there ever that gathering of, of the larger group? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, back in the day, of course, we met way too often. Too many chairs thrown across the room. Uh, and, um, but then we were very much more in touch. And as the company has grown, we now have an annual uh, gathering. Where, um, where as many as can gather back in Chicago and, and touch base. And it's very much a part of the job of the artistic director, artistic directors in this case, to stay in touch with all of us and, and what are you reading and what are you following. And so, um, it, it, but, but in terms of everybody getting into a room, it, it's much more difficult than it used to be. Yeah, and we're trying now uh, to do more than one because there are people who are based in LA, people are based in New York, people mm. just can't get there. Right. And the pandemic, of course, has taught us all one way or another how to use that Zoom thing. So, um, so there's been a lot of discussion and a couple of attempts to do 
you know, uh, uh, let's do an ensemble meeting for whoever can make it here. Let's do one do for another whoever. one over here. We were just talking the other night about how after the reception, we went to uh, uh, we went out we went out to dinner, and because it was the four of us and our production manager and her daughter, it became a mini uh, ensemble meeting. And it was, it was very lovely and it was uh, very freeing. Everybody felt like safe and comfortable to talk about what they really felt about uh, either the direction of the show or the direction of the ensemble and what our future is going to be and our relationships with one another. And we've been talking about how difficult it is to, you can't manufacture that for 50 people. To make but it passing down the stories from the old days are, yeah. is very much important too. The, the oral history of the place. Uh, and so it's, for the new folks in the company, it's very important that they learn what the impulses of the group were and where it came from and why they're to get, why we're together and why they're here. And uh, so as, you know, I, I can't believe I'm one of the, one of the old folks now, uh, John Mahoney, who came several times to the Galway Arts Festival from Steppenwolf and did several plays. He would, when we all started the company, we were all like 20 something we met this guy, John Mahoney, who was 30-something. So we said, you get to play all the fathers and grandfathers. <laughs> and, and so that's how John came into the, to the group to begin with. And uh, so it's, it, it, it's always been very organic. So it's getting late. I know there's lots of people who want to come in. I'm going to take one last question, even I know there's more than one. Yeah, yeah, there are really quick questions. The soundscape, I love that. Oh, yeah. Just like, what was the inspiration for you in Aura? No, my mother's from Massachusetts, <laughs> but half my family is from East Texas. Uh, so yeah, that's well. And I also was uh, I was trying to listen to how Namir and John, because they do work very closely together, and they've been through this before. I was trying to find a way uh, energetically and vocally to match them, not copy them, but uh, I would say that one of the great things about being the mother is you, you, when, when Saul comes in, he's, you know, he's a complete outsider, but in, with the mother, what I, I've talked with him about is like, she had moments of violence. She had moments where she, you know, she will shout to be heard, where she has this and that, and, um, and you see where some of it actually, some of how they are, uh, they were impacted by, they were impacted by their parents. And so I was trying to find a way to, to uh, introduce that energetically and vocally. And so listening to Namir and John, my coming in with my, my, with my own voice, uh, uh, it, I wanted to do something that approached a little more of, of what they are. And we are in Texas. I mean, we're, well, we're, not in, we're in California, California but, yeah. but we are in that area uh, of the world, and I... And I decided that she was actually from there as well, that she wasn't a transplant. And as to the soundscape, a gentleman named Richard Woodbury uh, composed all of this, the music and the sound, and he's a composer, sound designer, that I've, I think, just about every show I've done since 1980-something, uh, Richard has, has joined me. And uh, so we have a shorthand, and, and a lot of this was his idea, the idea of actually incorporating the coyotes into the music, uh, things like that. That I, I credit Richard with, with a lot of that. Yeah, that was great. I think we're all going to be hearing coyotes in our sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
thank you for joining us for this episode. For more episodes, visit GIAF.ie or find First Thought backstage on any podcast platform.